PD Raw is a podcast sharing the experiences and insights of people with personality disorders or traits by being brave and talking about the things that are shameful and painful. Humans demystify and destigmatize the things that we hide. The aim of this podcast is to let others know that they are not alone. By showing the reality behind our walls, we hope to bring people closer together, connecting in a more open and authentic way. Please be aware that, due to its topic, this podcast is adults only, not safe for work, and may contain triggering content. Howdy there again, our loyal and captive audience. We've got few here again with Noda. I'm the one doing the introducing for the Queen of the Pod, doing a little bit of role reversal up in here, and it's been a little while since we had a team up, but here we are once again. How's it going, Noda? Oh, pretty good. Hey, few. And we've got a bit of an unusual episode today because it's a thank you episode. It is indeed a big thank you episode. To Temporary Feeling 591, shout out, and kind of the cool interaction that we had with them on the sub and the vignette that she shared with us. And also to thank her for that fairly large donation that she gave our way out of the charity of her heart. Mm, which is fantastic because we're not actually making any money here. We're losing money. It costs money to host, to have the app that records and then mixes and then hosts and then publishes the the pod. So, yeah, to get that support is really, really fantastic because I don't know about you, but I'm not particularly wealthy. And, yeah, it's great to have someone just to back this and to take that burden off a bit and allow us to keep going with this and keep expanding and keep sharing it and hopefully – it's giving people a platform to talk about their experience and connecting us all to each other through it. Absolutely. In terms of my finances, all I'm going to say, if anybody out there has got a money tree, I would be a glad recipient <laughs> of one myself. So let me know where I can find it. You need it in a pot plant, don't you? Because you live in an apartment. <laughs> yeah, that is true. <laughs> so money tree that only grows to a certain height. Man, we're getting real specific now. Yeah, and, and it's got to be frost tolerant too. yeah canadian weather (laughs) and the tropical shit like y'all got down there just (laughs) tripping me again about the weather and temperature no sadly we've got frost as well so um, yeah it's crazy so yeah yep has frost and then it'll get to like 24 in the winter and it's really dry and there's these Mm. really cold winds and people get really really sick because their body just goes what the fuck is going on that sounds like my reaction even right now, secondhand vicariously. So that sounds entirely appropriate. But yes, also, if anybody would like to continue to contribute to the pod, we have a link on Alitu, I believe. And yeah, we're just two unpaid janitors right now, keeping the lights on in this place. So, you know, think about the unpaid janitors. All yeah. right, then. Yeah. And so we can't offer anybody any money for coming on and exposing themselves. It's merely the joy of revealing all to an audience that people get out of it. 
Yeah, well, at the moment, it's kind of a labor of love, but everybody hopefully gets something out of it. We get people's experiences that people can listen to. We're each enjoying the roles that we're taking on. We've had many people come on here who enjoyed the platform to be heard or even on air in some of the discussions that we've had learning things about themselves that was more than they came with. So it's at the moment, hopefully just this mutual, pro-social, beneficial thing for everybody. And anybody who would like to take part, either in showing up or donating or letting people know about the pod, will take literally anything. And <laughs> yeah, whatever and you feel plants. free. <laughs> and <laughs> potted plants that will make me money. All righty <laughs> then. So with that preamble out of the way, let's move on to the star of the hour. Mm. So initially we saw a post that this person made and you responded to it. So I guess, you know, we're on this forum where people discuss their narcissism or other personality disorder. It is dedicated to people with narcissism. And I think a lot of people come there in desperation because they've discovered this side of themselves and then they talk about or they start to unpack their past and their pain and their memories. And yeah, this member has talked about, I think, being confined as a child, confined in their apartment. I mean, I get a real sense of that with their post to the point where she says she wasn't allowed out except under strict supervision, wasn't allowed to look out the window and could hear other children playing but was kept away from that, which that's really, really striking to me. Yeah, and that was, so first of all, I'll just say that this post really stood out to me at first. I didn't write anything in the moment, but I was like, I got to come back for this one. But yeah, the thing that you just mentioned about the being kind of trapped in the tower or castle removed from everybody else, and just to set the scenario a bit more, talking about being able to hear the neighborhood kids playing outside and not being able to go down and interact. So you're locked in this scenario of being able to know what the outside is, where other kids are, and kids naturally wanting to find playmates or people who will have fun with them, but not being able to partake in it. And that sounds, if you're a kid, really cruel, to be honest. It sounds really capricious or arbitrary. You would probably have some resentment towards your caregivers for not allowing you to partake in this at all. And she did explain later on that there was a reason, which was that it was an unsafe neighborhood or people would get up to sorts of mischief and trouble that her parents rightfully didn't want her to get into. But, and this is a big old but, we may understand this as adults looking at the situation. If you are a three or a four year old, which I think she was describing actually was at the time. That explanation isn't going to be very attractive or you don't understand what trouble means or dangers or, I mean, maybe you could understand something might happen where you get hurt because you can imagine or have had experiences of being hurt, but something like stealing or trespassing or getting in trouble potentially with the police from loitering or some other things, you just don't really have a concept for those things at that age. And so your parents can be looking out for dangers for you that you yourself are completely unable to conceptualize. And so it might be totally justified and make perfect sense 
from the child's perspective, still arouse negative, hostile feelings. So and that was some. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, only that I am a bit suspicious of parents who are like this, or in this case, it was a grandparent. And I think I wonder whether that's some of it that the grandparent didn't have, you know, not being as young and fit didn't have the physical stamina to deal with perhaps challenging situations, so stayed away and pulled the child away. But I would rather teach my kid to deal with those difficult situations. I mean, maybe if you can, keep them away from the worst, but that's their environment. So teach them to deal with the people in their environment instead of keeping them away from it because, well, it just leads into, I mean, that goes down the path where you end up with a cult. Do you know what I mean? The outside world is mm -hmm. dangerous, stick with us, we've got the right way, everybody else is wrong, and they'll lead you into somewhere that's false and bad. And, yeah, so I'm, I would just be, I'd put that into the mix as well. You know, how much was it really unbearable? Because if there are kids outside playing, well, surely there are positive experiences to be had. And maybe you can say, well, you know, you're just in the courtyard out the front, but you're not going anywhere else. But they can come here, they can play in the courtyard, I'll sit in the chair and watch you guys, but you can have fun here. And that way you can get some of those needs met. And that desire to play with other kids is a desire to be a human and to grow. You know, it's not play play, it's the social skills, it's developing your body, it's learning to move properly, it's learning to understand humans, you know, and testing all parts of being a human by bouncing them off other children and finding out what happens. So, so that's really concerning to me. If a caregiver said, no, don't go out and interact with the world, it's too dangerous, stay here. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of really great things that you said there. So I'm going to do respond to the cults first and then the kids. Okay, you know, I'll do the kids actually right now because it's just fresh mm -hmm. on my mic because you said it. But yeah, I mean, exactly. Like one of the things I tell kids who I've helped to babysit or kind of been a part of their lives or involved more significantly is that it is your job as a kid to learn and you are learning the things you need to be adequate in life, like your play is a way of accruing skills with other people or practicing the things that you're going to need later. And so to prevent a child from having those experiences is cutting them off from certain things really significantly. And I think there's something later on in another one of the comments that she wrote that maybe leans a bit into your intuition, where she talked about her mother and how she treated her when there were guests around of holding her to a high standard of good behavior and putting some shame or blame on her for when circumstances were awkward or something wasn't panning out and kind of treating her in a certain way. So you can see in those circumstances that there is a vulnerability that's being kind of spurned of having to put on appearances for other people and being willing to scapegoat your own child or to make them play a role in order to facilitate that facade or that appearance, that instrumentalization, putting your own comfort over perhaps your own child's needs. So it does sound like there is to some degree something in this family where they were thinking about their own needs or appearances over and above temporary feelings. So mm. that's something that I think I can hear a little bit. But then I 
want to come back to the cult thing. And what you're saying there is absolutely spot on. And she even describes how in the family that they had an air of superiority or grandiosity or inflated egos. And as this three or four year old, you hear these other kids and you're not allowed to interact with them. So it's a black box. You don't know what the difference between you or them are, but you know they exist and you're curious, you want to know. And in that space of not knowing, something has to fill it. And without being able to healthily interact back and forth to fill out those questions, to get to know them, to get deeper and so on and so forth, you're going to resort to infantile, primitive mechanisms. You're going to be afraid of those people. You're thinking that you're staying away from them because they want to hurt you, or you kind of repress it or deny other people's having any interiority. And that's why you don't have the skills to be able to interact with people later on in life because you didn't develop them. Or you could take the route that she describes as having taken of well, I'm not down there with them, but that's because I'm just so much better. Anyways, they're beneath me. They're not worth my time. My family treats me in a certain way, and we hold ourselves in a higher regard than the common riffraff. So kind of exactly like you're saying with cults of an in-group or an out-group and a way of portraying others in black and white terms, that's exactly what it sounded like happened. And she even described trying to articulate that feeling to her family of feeling these feelings of entitlement or superiority or being better than in the family kind of buttressing or reinforcing that probably to her detriment. So yeah, I think that's spot on in terms of this is exactly how cult mechanisms would work as well of isolating you from healthy in- engagements with the outside world. And even if the outside world is dangerous or there are things to be worried about, you should be trying to teach people how to navigate it because you don't really have a choice. You live in the world. Trying to just remove somebody from it creates a whole bunch of other issues or qualms that then has to be addressed in its turn. And it sounds like that didn't quite happen here. Mm. And it's noticeable with cults, isn't it? The more isolated and reduced they become, the sicker they are. You know, those members, the more twisted the whole mood becomes, the more they shut themselves off and exclude other members and get down to smaller and smaller groups or further and further away, the worse off they are because somehow we need that crazy mix of all sorts of people to to balance us as individuals. Oh, absolutely. And this is why isolation is one of the dimensions of abuse and control by any sort of entity. So, I mean, it can be a partner, an institution, a boss, a cult, a political party, like whatever the heck you want to name it. And exactly as you're saying, the preventing people from seeing others in a more healthy, integrated, balanced way and instead isolating them and controlling the narrative of how to see other people without being able to get beyond that and actually having realistic experiences and expectations. Yeah, you start building in your own neuroses or fears or phobias or entitlements and things kind of get crazy from there in all sorts of directions. Yeah, yeah, it's like you you loop again and again through yourself but that means looping and amplifying those neurotic bits the unhealthy bits doesn't it it's like people don't get a release from it 
Yeah. And I mean, just to go back to kind of the fear of the other or the insecurity of things you don't know, it says here in terms of also the danger in terms of being isolated, it makes sense now the area was dangerous. I even knew at that time. And slowly I began to think of myself as better than those people, even though I was afraid of them with far mm. less interpersonal competence. Wow. And There you go. Uh, Inside, hey? Yeah. And then talking about how she had lots of books and was special for reading the books. So again, this is the thing of people wanting to privilege the things that they're good at and demonizing or minimizing the things that they're not. And the amount of insight here to identify that she was afraid of the other people because she didn't have the interpersonal competence to interact with them. And so one of the ways you can resolve that is to say, well, I'm better than you anyway, so I don't need the skills to interact with you because you're not worth the time or attention. But that is kind of the trajectory of how it takes of there's this issue in the world, being removed from other people. You don't develop the skills to allow yourself to be secure, the interpersonal competence. That lack of skillfulness makes you afraid. And then that fear, in order to be egocentric, you don't want to say, well, I'm afraid because I'm incompetent or inept or I'm just a weak, cowardly thing. So instead you project of, well, they're just not worth anyways. And so it's very almost clear to see the development of the emotions of superiority from how the circumstance was set up in the first place. And it's funny because I'm, this is really jiving or this is really, sorry, chiming with my family. You know, I know that we've been insecure and there are some things we're good at. And so those things are very important, but there is definitely an awkwardness and a turning away from the majority of, I think, of human experience. You know, that sort of shyness, turning away and then dismissing and then the elevation of those few things. And when you were saying that, I was thinking about my therapist saying to me, a snob basically takes a random trait that they possess and then elevates that up. And it's a seesaw. They put others down so that you can raise up like a seesaw. Mm -hmm. Do you call them seesaws? We do indeed. Yeah. And um, I remember when he said, you know, it's a random trait. (laughs) (laughs) And that was like, I'm sure it was his deliberate words. And for me, of course, it was hurtful to my ego (laughs) because I'm like, but we're academic and intelligent that way. And that's the only important thing. You're telling me it's random. But yeah, I can see totally what he was saying there. And yeah, this is what you're saying to me. It's that, oh, well, I'm not going to fit in or I'm going to go and meet them and feel like yeah, like a loser. So I'm going to puff myself up and hold on to that thing that I've done or that I could do, or that my family did, or that a grandparent did, and I'm going to cling on to it and make myself out to be really good because I've got it. Yeah, Alf, that's so beautiful of you to share. And yeah, I mean, oh, there's directions that could go there. So I mean, the first thing that I'll say is I'll shout out the pod that I just did with April, or just released with April on coping mechanisms and how we've really talked there, particularly with April's substance abuse, about how her use of substances was very functional in compensating for the skills that she otherwise didn't have. 
in terms of emotional mood regulation, confronting fears and vulnerability, and interpersonal competence, exactly like we're talking about here. And so in this case, you can almost see the superiority attitude as a coping skill or strategy, an unhealthy one, to be able to manage one's fears and anxieties and ineptitudes in certain areas. Yeah, something like that, that sort of inflated confidence, it gets you out the door and mm -hmm. gets you dealing with the world. But on the other hand, it's like a, a really scaffolding made out of something balsa wood you know it, it's not really strong but yet I think you're built in so you're stuck in it so you're depending on something that isn't strong and you're stuck in it I think because it is so false and you've shut yourself off so you're stuck there then you don't go on and develop you know with those sort of less healthy ways of dealing they're often dead-end road where that's what you rely on and that's all you have and that's all you're going to get. So, well, that, you know, you don't progress beyond it. Yeah, that is the problem with the unhealthy coping mechanisms. They do make sense and they serve a purpose. The problem is when you employ them chronically, they kind of unfortunately tend to fuck your life up. Go figure. <laughs> but, you know... Kind of the thing that was just standing out to me there is talking about the scaffolding or this construct of superiority. And when you go out and interact with the world, you immediately see that it's not the power move that you think it is because it distorts your view of reality just as potently as if you were intoxicated on alcohol. You become intoxicated mm. on the superiority. And so it always distorts what you see in front of you. You're always in a weaker position than Somebody who is either has interpersonal skills and competency in relating to and navigating other people, or at the very least, somebody who has inquisitiveness, curiosity, and acceptance of other people and who's willing to kind of reflect or take things and try to actually see them for what they are, then trying to put something of themselves into the situation that allows them to stay above or fulfill their ego needs or something like that. So there are other stances that you could have in terms of interacting with other people that could leave you better off in the superiority complex, but that's the one that buttresses your self-esteem. So that's the one that you kind of need just for your own personal reasons. But also your therapist saying a random trait, so fucking dead on and accurate <laughs> because it's just, you could say that, well, at least I'm beautiful or I'm an academic or we're wealthy or, you know, if you're fucking racist, at least we're white or a blah, 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 like all these traits. And yeah. Or I'm really good at pulling apart cars or you know we're the only people who understand food or you know we're really physically strong or so many things yeah precisely so you can choose anything and before you actually get to like any particular traits just a quick question so in your case with your family of academics how many people would you say were deeply fulfilled and content and satisfied with their lives and were doing things they found worthwhile and fulfilling? I would have said all of them. Well, okay. But, but then I would have said all of them, but I don't know actually because I see them as family members. Like, yeah, I, no, yeah, there's definitely maybe on the surface they seemed happy, but underneath – Underneath they weren't and aren't. 
Yeah. Yeah, and maybe that's also an issue in the family is to insist that you're happy on the outside and to avoid any problems or looking at problems. That was exactly the answer that I was looking for because (laughs) people who are happy and satisfied and fulfilled and content, they can come to other people from a position of you can be whatever you are and it's fine with me because I'm fine with myself. The people who need to elevate a certain trait to a point of superiority to make themselves above other people, again, have things that they are afraid of, things that they are insecure about. There is some ineptitude that they're attempting to mask. Even the outward appearance of happiness, well, again, you just said it. It is only the outer appearance. It's not the real thing because they are afraid and insecure of the fact that they haven't found the real thing like was promised to them or like is expected of them. Or the idea that maybe there's something different in life that we have to do to accomplish one that gets you that deeper contentment, but we're not doing it right now. And how the fuck do we find it? Fucking terrifying. Existentially so. And Mm. so, again, it's when you're coming to other people and you're already putting them into boxes or you're discounting the entire wealth of what they could potentially have to offer. And then if you ask me and you say, well, at least we're academics, I turn back to you and say, but is your wife life worth? Is your wife worth living? (laughs) Is your life worth living? Are you satisfied? Do you enjoy what you see, what you do, the future? And your answer is no. Well, what the fuck does your random trait matter to me? I'd rather just be content than be an academic. Hmm. I think... Insert whatever here. I think, yeah, there's a sense of should. Life should be that way. In that's mm. what I've had living to an ideal of how it should be, rather than taking the whole world as it is, which is pretty complicated. And you know, it is so many different things. You know, being able to deal with all the different things. That's yeah, I'm not trying to squeeze life into a narrow mold where only certain things are acceptable. Mm, Exactly. And I think even temporary feeling, going back to our sponsor, I think she described the same thing of trying to, or kind of I even mentioned with the mother, of trying to put out that outward facade of being happy, but that outward facade seeming to matter more than the actual inner constituent parts. And it's just a curious inversion of what really matters but it's a pressure that gets put onto a lot of people of that should and that shame of if you fail to live up to it and this is a way of hollowing people inside out of making them define themselves by those shoulds from the outside under threat of shame and not actually going from the inside out of well what do you feel and Here's the reason why for you to be integrated and to process your feelings and to show you what things are practically useful to enact. And sometimes those things will be recognized by other people. A lot of the things we consider to be virtuous or moral or right, there are usually ways in which you can reframe them in terms of just being practically or instrumentally useful. And that 
should be the thing that's good about them, in my opinion. But a lot of people kind of lose sight of the practicality or usefulness of things. And it's all in the show or the appearance or the externals, as opposed to what the actual purpose is. And that's kind of a definition of narcissism, almost of a certain sort, where things are defined in terms of the false self with the idealization to what garners the correct praise or attention from people. But the inner core, what's happening on the inside, is traumatic, is painful, chaotic. It is not something that you actually want to be, but the more you keep doing the shallow things that don't actually address the real issues, kind of the worse it keeps on getting or the more it continues to limp along. Yeah, it's like it's almost designed to make things worse, isn't it? Or to definitely to trap you in there because you know, you're not growing and developing and then so you feel worse about yourself. So then you've got to cling harder to the thing that makes you feel good about yourself and on and on it goes. Yeah, it is a self-reinforcing path to a not really fulfilling life because again, you're cutting yourself off from things. So you don't really have reality testing or a significant engagement with the world. And You can't really be happy in the world when you don't even know how to interact with it. Mm. So, yeah, that's a big reason why to try and draw people outside of that kind of schizoid element of disorders, of shutting yourself off from people. And the one thing that you hit on in your comment, and which was also an issue in my family, was aggression in the child, in a young child, and how the caregivers respond to that and how their response can leave you feeling very ashamed about this part of yourself. So what was it you wrote there? You wrote something quite profound about your interactions with your niece. Yeah, so let's talk about that, because this was also what Temporary Feeling in part came here for, which was to describe how she was a bit of a shit kid. She was a kid who would enjoy hitting her parents, or maybe even other people, and that there was a grandiosity to it, a sense of superiority, a desire to engage in this. But also you can see that this is also a way of sort of releasing some of the pressure of being superior or demonstrating superiority by being able to hit people. And this is also reinforced by the fact that she saw her mother as, I think, more dependent or vulnerable in the family structure. But the grandmother or great-grandmother was able to kind of hit with reckless abandon, get away with it. I mean, she had dementia, so there's probably some licenses there. But, I mean, you're a kid and you're looking at these roles in the family and it's just like, oh, people get to hit people and some people just have to take it. I'm going to be the hitter. Yeah, and I would, I'll just jump in and say, if there is a child with a pattern of hitting, and like I'm talking about this as someone who's a mum, and has been a mum for a while now and spent so much time watching other mothers and other parents and the way they interacted with their children because I needed to learn a lot of skills. And if there's a problem behaviour like that that just keeps going on and on, it's not the kid. It's There's something going on and that's the release valve. But, you know, there's something in that family where that behavior is allowed to flourish. And I would say there's some pressure going on because the other thing is parents will focus in on 
just one part or just a few little things within a kid's behavior and they can latch onto it and become obsessed and thus really magnify it. And I've really seen with parents that it's not so much that they see the kid really clearly and occasionally some don't because it can be like people have an idea in their head. It's like a fixed idea. They can't let it go and they see the child through the idea. So they're not fully seeing the child. They're seeing the idea and they see the idea within the child, but it's actually within them. So it's some sort of concept like, oh, you know, my kid is terrified of water, you know, say, and oh, I can't take them near the water and I have to get in the shower with them because they're scared of breathing or whatever, whatever. And it's actually the parent's own issue, but they've put it onto the child and they see it within the child. So there's all this big drama around that particular issue. And it's, I think with parents, it's not so much that some parents do it, it's that all of us do it. Like none of us can totally clearly see our children because, you know, we are human, we're limited, we're flawed, we have our own issues, but it's how much we see them. And sometimes people can get really, really stuck on that issue within themselves and barely acknowledge the child beyond it because they're so wrestling with that issue that they've lumped onto the child and labeled as being the child. So, yeah, I would say in a situation like that where some kid is sort of really showing hitting behavior, what is going on in the family? And when you talked about that with the mum being more submissive, it reminds me of something I read in the book Humanizing the Narcissistic Style. And yeah, I'll put the details of this in this the episode notes. But yeah, he said, the author said that I think the parent has given the child, so when it develops, when narcissism develops, the parent has given the child the power to approve or disapprove of the parent or make judgments or somehow, yeah, given away some sort of power. And with that, when the child has that power to really change how the parent feels about themselves, then the child becomes contemptuous because it's a power that the child shouldn't have. And that's a a link to one of the drivers. This is what I understand of narcissism, is that contempt for the caregiver. And within that, there's bullying. And I do remember my therapist saying to me, are you telling me that you bully your mother? And when I looked at it, I said, yeah, I do. I do. And it's in that interaction of my mother being submissive at times. So then I pick up on that and enact that role and then become contemptuous. So yeah, when you said that, it resonated with me actually. Oh man, that is incredible because I kind of stumbled on my words there a bit because I was reading, so I was looking for something and you just said that. So these next two quotes are going to really kind of strike home. I mean, it's almost like you remembered or foresaw what was coming. So this feeling of being special and mature at three and four, being able to understand things that others don't, allegedly, really helped me through the times I got interrogated and beaten. So in the family, she was also 
happy in, in terms of seeing other people using violence. I used to look my mom in the face and tell her to calm down, stone-faced, before resuming my power struggle. So there is that devaluation and that contemptuousness even towards her caregiver. And yeah. then... And the inappropriate power. Correct, exactly. Yeah. And, of course, if you have a power struggle, it means because you don't feel safe or secure in sharing or in reciprocity or in being looked after. So you struggle for power where there is no trust. And then another one we have here is the TLDR. My mom and grandfather and great-grandma were bullied by my grandmother, who was nice to me, in front of me. And I did even worse, and I enjoyed it. I felt extremely unsafe when I was around vulnerability. I wanted to distance myself from it as much as possible. I was tough, couldn't you see? So again, we're seeing that there are problems within the family of using aggression and violence between differing people, inappropriate boundaries between the caregiver and the child, and the child learning to use aggression to cover over vulnerability, feeling unsafe, feeling untrusting. And so you resort to something that you see as useful or instrumental. And then you also learn to enjoy it because it gets you the results that you want. And that's that, that's a really key part of pathological narcissism, isn't it? That shame around vulnerability because it does get attacked. And so people kind of have to pick one way of being it, if that's in front of them, oh, you're either a violent, aggressive, the dominating one, or you're the submissive one, who are you going to be? You know, there's that dilemma for the child and this child has gone in one way. You know, there were two ways to go and they've picked one way. And of course, that way it's perhaps more survivable in the moment, but it brings a lot of shame, doesn't it? It does. And I guess the other thing, right, that I was going to mention, and then this will link into with my own niece or experiences with kids. But when you're a child, you should naturally have aggression that you're expressing or trying to work out because human beings can be aggressive. And we need to learn how to skillfully own those feelings and how to express them and when is appropriate. That itself is a skill or a competence, the same way as interpersonal skills or all sorts of other things. So you have this child who's already primed to some degree to potentially feel aggressive thoughts or feelings, or, you know, I'm sure everybody has stories of kids, maybe their own or being around them, who have temper tantrums and storm off and getting angry and acting out. And if you parent effectively, you can actually cut down on that behavior because you can talk to them about, well, what's happening underneath and why expressing this or, or once you figure it out, you also say, well, okay, like you also teach them, you tell them you're feeling angry right now because of this thing that you're upset about and you're afraid that nobody's paying attention or you're not safe or nobody's going to listen. So then you act out. And if you can show them that they're actually safe or that they will be listened to and respected when they simply share their feelings and that you'll be responsive and that things go deeper and the relationship is better or it feels good when there's actual love and connection, then the anger becomes less instrumentally useful. It doesn't achieve as powerful or as good of outcomes. So there's simply no use for it. It kind of starts to drop out. 
And this also goes, again, towards violence in the family. People are like the whole debate about hitting kids. This is a reason why you don't fucking do it, because you're only demonstrating at that point that if you are doing violence or aggression for the purpose of punishment and shaming towards certain people, then that structure of violence towards people and punishing and shaming them gets fixed in the child's mind and they will become desperately afraid of being in the inferior position, the fear of vulnerability. You want to actually inculcate in them that you will be safe to be vulnerable with certain people, obviously people who are trustworthy or part of the family, so on and so forth. And those people are people or people in general who you should treat with some sort of decorum, there is no place for violence or aggression or coming with a shame-based attitude. And that lets you actually be less afraid of other people too. So you don't feel like you have to shame them before they shame you. And then the other thing that I mentioned as well was with kids is that I like to rough around, have us with them and play around. And with my niece, she's always kind of liked horror stuff, partially because her mom does as well. And so she's always been kind of fascinated with like messed up stuff. And these days we kind of watch horror movies. And when we're talking, she says all sorts of off-color things that you wouldn't <laughs> usually say in polite company. She's She said quite a few times that she's going to cut my heart out and like with a spear and eat it. And, other violent dismemberments <laughs> and you know we also play around like play hit and slap each other in the face and mess around and stuff but <laughs> in that case it's not the actions it's the emotions we know that we are playing we know that we can play with each other and that we can interact with in this way or we can talk in this way like we have our own sort of humor and we get each other and she knows that it's context sensitive. Some people don't interact with you. Like, that's not okay. Like, if you say that before your uh, mom and auntie, they're going to have a fucking heart attack. Or like, you know, like kind of that other thing where like, she'll try out swear words with me. So she knows Uncle Howard is chill. I don't really care about words. So it's like, okay, kid, say it seven times, get it out of your fucking system. And then let's just watch whatever we're going to watch, like whatever. But it's a safe place to be able to engage in some of those things that people are naturally drawn to or fascinated with or things you can get insecure about without knowing about them and having a safe way to contain it or express it to gain some sort of mastery over it where it's now no longer taboo or forbidden or painful it's just yeah you can mess around with some people you don't with others aggression is normal you should feel aggression to or anger to protect yourself she knows that with other people, you don't fight unless you need to. You try to de-escalate. You try to resolve the conflict, find a teacher, walk away. But if you ever really needed to, of course you fucking fight. Because like, if it's if you're going to get hurt, if you don't, and somebody's being unwarrantedly aggressive towards you, yeah, you should fucking throw fists. You should take somebody's head off. I shouldn't give her any more encouragement for that because she already says shit like that. But it's... <laughs> so... I, the problem is, it goes back to what we were saying before, things are more complicated and more nuanced in these dichotomous black or white solutions of you don't do this or you don't do that. It's a lot better to be able to teach the child at as age appropriate and slowly over time manner, the same thing as you would do with an adult of the complexities of the nuances of the reasons why for certain things of the context sensitivity. And that then also fills out some of those 
blanks or some of those spaces where you're like, well, why do I have this feeling? Where does it go? What do I do when it comes up? And so that allows them to be more secure because they now know more about how their own body, how their own mind works, where these feelings and impulses come from. And even just sometimes as a kid, as temporary feeling was saying of just wanting to hit somebody and it feeling good. I think that there's, again, probably something natural to it. Like lots of kids play in roughhouse and even as adults, we have the organized sports of boxing or MMA and people fighting in all sorts of other ways. It is something that we seem to do and is a part of the human experience. And so instead of trying to deny or repress it, which will come out as its own neuroses or phobia or shaming of yourself, to feel ashamed that I have those feelings or impulses, you find a way to channel it in a productive or at least a fun way that doesn't harm anybody. Watching horror things with her is another way of doing the same or for people in general of partaking in that type of media or literature or whatnot, of ways of talking about those things that cause us neurosis or fear or anxiety or repulsion or the taboo, and being able to actually contain it in a way where it's not ripping itself out of you in terms of getting into an affair or being afraid of people or obsessive compulsive about certain rituals because there are these competencies you don't have or these things that are unknown to you you have to choose a stance towards them and you don't have the skill to deal with them with nuance so i'm a big advocate of teaching a kid to take people's hearts out and put on no um (laughs) a big advocate of moving with your kid how do they understand their aggression? How do they express it? And how do you do so in a way that is mutual and respectful and reciprocal? So I think another thing is if you say, well, as an adult, you're licensed to be aggressive and violent, but as a kid, you're not and just got to take it. Well, what sort of message do you think you're teaching them about vulnerability and who's entitled to do what? Mm, yes. Yeah. It double standards there. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I my family definitely has uh, difficulty handling aggression, so it's a very nice family, a very polite family, and a lot of things were taboo. And in my partner's family, it's quite different. And it's funny; I was always attracted to them because they seem so vivid and alive compared to my own family. Yeah, like really vivid, laughing a lot, and. It's when you're talking about playing, actually the adults still muck around and they play like children, you know, they will laugh and laugh and laugh. They'll do ridiculous things to make each other laugh. They'll literally play wrestle at times. And that was always so attractive to me. And also, yeah, they can be quite childlike, but there's lots and lots of humor. And I was watching my mother-in-law interacting with some of her grandchildren, young grandchildren. And I was really struck because she was calling out, say, the aggressive behaviors. So even the desires, the emotions like, oh, you know, so-and-so is trying to hurt their sister and they're being sneaky. And But even though she's calling it out, she's so loving, you know, she's really loving of the kids. So Almost she finds it funny, but, you know, they're really, that family is really able to talk about that sort of sadistic side of being human, the aggressive side, 
the more destructive side. And maybe they'll say, oh, so-and-so is doing this, but they'll laugh. And they also find the the sort of naughty side, the mischievous side of children really delightful. So they do swap stories about the latest outrageous thing that one of the children has done and everybody finds that funny and then they combine it with this sort of playfulness and this really, really full-on sense of humour which is really pretty strong and pretty sadistic to each other and to themselves. But it just, I think, It's just an interesting way of handling those parts of being human and I think that's why they are vivid and alive and playful and, of course, they've got their own issues too. But in being comfortable with that more aggressive side and the more destructive side, you know, they've kept also that playfulness and that joy and it also makes them able to handle that in others so definitely my family is not very good at sticking up for themselves and defending themselves whereas this family mm. can pick has that because they're in touch with the parts of themselves that might be spiteful or, or cruel or dismissive or whatever they can pick it when it happens and they can respond instantly so yeah they are very good at standing up for themselves it seems to be tied in from what i can see in my life it seems to be tied in with a lot of things But yeah, it's so fascinating to watch because it's such a different way to the way I was brought up. Oh, there's just so many incredible things that you're mentioning there. So one, you know, I'll do Burning Lila a solid and just talking about sadistic glee, that joyfulness in kind of some of the acts of aggression towards other people and kind of learning what the boundaries are between shit that people are going to laugh at and what's morally outrageous, but accepting some of it as a matter of course. You're describing that as being something that's kind of accepted or embraced in that family. So that's interesting to hear. And also, like you're saying, your family had a solution towards aggression, as did that family and sadism. They are different solutions to trying to cope with some of the emotions and feelings and drives and impulses we have within us. And they have different drawbacks and different strong suits. But the thing that I really like that you mentioned is exactly how you mentioned that you are handicapping yourself, again, by kind of cutting off certain areas of life. And you just give strict verbotens of things that cannot be done or that are shameful or that you look down upon haughtily. You're kind of tying yourself up you're blindfolding yourself because now you don't know how to navigate that when you see it in other people and you don't know the subtleties the nuances the intricacies and if somebody else comes at you who is skilled in that and they can force the confrontation on those terms not the ones you're comfortable with you will get your clock clean metaphorically literally in whatever it is that's going on and so This is a reason why to be able to play with each other in these ways kind of keeps your claws sharp. It keeps your muscle memory up. It is a way of being able to engage with those things in a safe environment for times and cases where it potentially isn't safe. And you do a disservice to your children by saying, Well, no, you don't need to know anything about this. Don't act like this. It's extremely shameful if you do it. We look down on those people. And it's just like, well, okay, but now you're anxious and phobic and you have this own superiority complex and now you're distorting your own 
grip on reality and you will not be able to handle it if this is something that pops up again in your life. You won't even recognize it, let alone be able to meet what the situation is. And so, yeah. You just, uh, yeah, you just, that's amazing because you are so describing my life path in a lot of ways because. Yeah, I was always the shy kid and the family is shy and I was always fragile and I couldn't cope and blah, 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 borderline, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And, yeah, there's so many places you can't go and things you can't do when you're like that. And I have now endured two decades of basically um, being made fun of by my partner uh, (laughs) with very cruel humour and I've always found that attractive even when it's infuriating because it just snaps me out of being too serious and makes me laugh. And actually, it has. It's taken a long time and I am actually, I think, physically sensitive. Like my nervous system is sensitive, so I'm not prone to being tough. But boy, has it toughened me up and I'm doing things that I never, ever thought I could have done. And yeah, it's all this sadistic humor where I've been on the end of it. And it's just slowly changed the way I've, yeah, dealt with the world and made me more able to deal with it. And yeah, it is. It does really toughen you up. It's really, really useful. And just like you said, if you're playing with your family members and throwing it out there all the time, you are like honing it so that. Yeah, because, and it's really interesting because my partner's siblings have achieved really well. So they've had no background which kind of gave them an advantage socially for a career, but they've done really, really well. And it's only because of those internal skills, that sort of strength and flexibility and being able to deal with difficulty and pressure and aggression being able to stand up for themselves, deal with other people, manage that, and then direct people, and they really don't take things personally. They're able to deal with the difficult parts of, say, management and managing others without taking any of that personally. And, yeah, some of that I think is through all these ways of being comfortable with that side of being a human. Yeah, you know, something that's actually really interesting that you brought there to me, or I'm thinking of now, is... When people get really neurotic about situations where they're trying to gain an advantage of some way or something's going on, like somebody's trying to take advantage of them and abuse flourishes when the person is confused, when they're in the dark, when they don't recognize what's happening and the possibility to blame yourself for the interaction or to be the one who is responsible for the aggression coming towards you. That is one of the key elements. Some of the biggest parts of control, abusiveness, manipulation isn't the actual acts themselves, but the taking advantage of the person's mind or creating an emotional environment where they do not recognize what is happening or even worse, they blame themselves for it. But if you've never had any practice, if you've never been taught, if you've never seen any or heard of people acting in this way or some of the kind of tools or things that go along with it, then when somebody comes to you with it, you don't know what to do. You don't know how to react. They can hit you in a way that some other people might kind of be quicker, move out of the way of the blow, can parry. And for you, they're just all blind spots or kind of a sitting duck and 
the really cruel thing about it is you're so impoverished and so defenseless that you actually identify yourself as having done something wrong or the target of shame or blame. Again, this is kind of like shy or meek or awkward. And then a situation where you're not comfortable and you're like, was it me? Like, what did I say the wrong? Did I do? And when you're more fluent, when you have those skills, when you have those competencies, you can just be like, oh, okay, I see what this person's doing. Or, you know, I see where they're coming from. And I know what I'm capable of. I know what situations like this are supposed to feel like. I've been here before. So I don't need to give a shit. This is the thing that you do here. It might be unpleasant. Oh, well, it'll be over. Like, it's just there's a calmness and acceptance. Yeah, and it is it like sitting duck. I relate to that so well, and that is not fun at all. If you don't have those skills of self-defense, then, yeah, there's so much that you have to shut yourself off from. But it is, isn't it? You can go into the sadistic way of being and use it in an unhealthy way. It's such a tricky subject, isn't it? Because you can use aggression and use it to dominate within a family and to get your own way. But also it's a fearful way too, isn't it? Because it's like I have to dominate in order to get my needs met. It's not a healthy way. Or, you know, if I'm angry, I have to hit the other person. You know, there's no other way to feel better about being angry and hurt. It's such a complicated thing. If you haven't explored that side, yeah, you can't. If it's not grown and healthy and alive within yourself, you can't draw on it and you can't see it in the other person. You've got nothing there when that comes into view, have you? Yeah, and so this is something where it's a crippling weakness if you are somebody who's caught up like that. But this is why I think I said this with Bernard and Lila when we were talking about sadism in part two towards the end, about why it's such a bad thing to label things like sadism or aggressiveness in moral terms and to say, well, you know, moral people aren't aggressive or aren't sadistic. And it's just, I'm sure I could think of situations where it is perfectly legitimate to be aggressive. And sadism, I think, is a feature of our psychology that allows us to be good at aggression by enjoying it. So again, sort of like with kids, where they get that sadistic glee is them practicing or sharpening their own claws, practicing being good at the thing that they are partially designed to do. Yeah, if you think humans don't have a sadistic and aggressive side, we'll turn on a TV streaming service <laughs> and just look at all our fucking shows. Well, just look at the like stories and narratives and the fact that they're usually built up with conflict and tension. I mean, there's just so many ways in which conflict and aggression and competing needs are a fundamental part of so many of our interactions. I mean, even a democracy is supposed to be the civilized way of curbing people's aggressive impulses and getting people to interact well with each other. And of course, there are still people within that democracy who are still licensed towards aggression or times when people within that democracy are licensed towards aggression. So it isn't about the wholesale blanket banning of these as concepts, but rather how do you integrate them as what is useful or functional for your situation and is also respecting of this is a part of you. And when you deny mm-hmm. it, when you cast it as inherently immoral or as a vice of some sort. That's how you end up with people who can become profoundly unhealthy as they blame themselves for their own justified or warranted sadistic or aggressive impulses that may arise from time to time, which makes them feel like they are 
a wicked or bad or immoral person constitutively down to the core. And that sounds like the inner core of shame or worthlessness from unrealistic expectations or idealizations or fantasies that can be put into people from their upbringing or society or the ways that they're raised. And so Mm. it actually is a way to fuck somebody up when done too egregiously. Mm. And that leads back to temporary feeling when you look at, you know, parents and families can label children and say, oh, they're like this, they're like that. And really it's not the kid because all kids are, you know, they're fairly similar. They've all pretty much got the same ingredients there. It's sort of a big tumble of all of the human feelings. And so when these labels come out, it's really about the family. It's about those adults and the issues that they've got in themselves. So that's what they're telling you about, I think. That, that's how I react to it. Yeah, I do. Personally, I get a reaction when people do tell me about this kid, their kid being this or that, because oh, it's just so limiting. And I really feel that with her story that she shared, that the child is bad for hitting. I just say, especially when they're small, you go, well, what is going on? What is making the child do that? And it's not the child. It's They're just like a steam valve because they can't help it. You know, when you're little, you don't have those complicated layers that sort of hold you back. When you're a kid, you just, out it comes. So, you know, what's going on there that the child is releasing? And it's not the child, it's the adults. Well, you know, we're right back towards what is the core of empathy? Kind of as I define it as curiosity and responsiveness to other people's inner lives. And in these cases where you kind of take these behaviors and see them in a certain way and you don't inquire deeper, you don't say why, you don't say what are they feeling, where is this coming from? Those are ways of being disempathic or finding a shallower superficial reason for something because it's easier. (laughs) It costs Mm. less emotional and mental resources. Empathy is effortful and takes a lot out of you. And so instead, you can act in these castigating or blaming ways. And that makes everything go real fucking quick to the disservice of the person on the other end who is now not understood or invalidated and whatnot. And I'm not shaming people who are not perfectly empathic, mind you, because as I said, it is a skill that as we are talking, many people can grow up without learning adequately. It's also a resource that takes a lot out of you. And so nobody's going to perfectly deploy it as a child or parent or just as a person in any range of circumstances. But the point is to try your best and the ability to really attune deeply to circumstances or to other people and to carry on, again, that childlike curiosity of wanting to get deeper into things and really get to the bottom of it, showing that in regard to your own child and having the respect to be humbled or hear things come out of them that you didn't anticipate before, or letting them have the confidence and the space to be able to speak on their own behalf, to empower them to do so is a profound display of empathy and gives them some of that confidence or security that we were talking about that you can lack growing up. But then you have to be comfortable going into those spaces back towards either for either the benevolent end or sadistic, malevolent things and everything in between. You can only kind of extend that empathy 
to the other person towards things that you're okay with going towards. And if you're not okay with it, you're not going to hold open space or for somebody or recognize it in them. And even if that's what they're feeling, it's going to get ignored and you're going to slap another label or behavior on it and you're going to go with that instead. And so you end up with this child who becomes twisted up inside because of these expectations or frameworks for interpretation that the parent is putting on them that doesn't even match what the fuck they're feeling inside or the reasons why or they're expressing things in the way that they're taught to, but it's not lining up with what's going on inside. And that is, again, another way that particularly narcissistic people, but other people can grow up feeling empty dissociated or masking, pretending to be what other people want, but not actually knowing what they feel or how to inquire about other people's feelings. So we're never really taught or seen or empowered to work out those feelings on their terms and be respected and guided throughout that process of understanding themselves more deeply. They were made to kind of fit into the mold of other people's empathetic blind spots or their own expectations or idealizations. Mm, and it's, I think, you know, life is about compromise because we're all different and we have to get along, but it's the degree, isn't it? Like, you know, yes. everybody's had to sacrifice and put what they want or how they feel to the side in numerous situations, but how often and how deeply. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Actually, I wanted to ask you this because... You and I are dealing with people with straight-up NPD who do, say, talk about themselves feeling empty or feeling just like a collection of personas who aren't really them. Yet when I talk to them on the pod and deal with them, I really I get a strong sense of a real person and a complicated person, but maybe somebody who's not comfy with certain things. But I kind of feel like i am dealing with a real person do you do you feel uh, like that yeah i really do you know even with some of our guests where you have these beautiful conversations and they say these deep things and you're really enjoying it and you feel like you've connected and then later on they're just like you know yeah i'm still an empty husk or you know my life still sucks and it's empty and it's like but then how did you say this thing or like how did we get here so yeah i mean this is the I think this is something which I've also said, which is if you're the person who's more empathetic and has more resources, you can see things in other people that they can't see in themselves. Or particularly for disordered people, you misread your own feelings and misunderstand yourself. And so sometimes you can be the person with maybe more fluency on the outside and you do recognize or you maybe do see something that's kind of true or you see the ghosts in the machine and a spark of life or those embers burning but the person themselves doesn't realize the treasure that they're sitting on and they kind of just toss it away and go back to their maladaptive coping mechanisms to deal with the emptiness and so yeah that's actually a really interesting thing of you to say i was just thinking about it earlier today so oh, absolutely you? yeah i was yeah, so. because yeah i feel like you can see the whole person there and it's more there's just a disconnect it's not that there is, like they might talk about being empty and not knowing who they are and not being a person, and yet you can see a complicated, vivid person there. It's just that trust. It feels like yeah. there's like not a trust in themselves. That's all it really is. It's that trust and connection back to 
themselves. Yeah, well, that lack of trust severs you from yourself, from other people, from the world. And I mean, you cannot be connected to anything without that trust or kind of take anything seriously. And so, yeah, that feeling is something that you need to be able to experience and integrate it into your life to be able to actually understand the words that other people say or the experiences that you're having or to be able to break through the anxiety and numbness of the responses you go through to kind of cope with constantly feeling like you're under threat. So yeah, I think that sounds entirely correct. Damn. Yeah, yeah. that was an interesting chat. Yeah, we're super, super thankful for the support. Yeah, that was a great chat and we are indeed thankful for the support. Thank you, Temporary mm-hmm. Feeling, for the contribution to the pod, both in words and in monetary value. And mm. you gave us a lot to think about with this, too. So just once again, we started on this topic, thought it was going to be interesting, wanted to do Temporary Feeling a solid. And then we even surprised ourselves with the insights and connections that we make while we're doing it on air. And again, this is kind of the model to anybody who's listening, who wants to come on or to do in your own life to take that risk, to find those safe spaces, to mull over and chew on these experiences or to do that reflection. And you will be surprised when you end up with more out of it than you possibly could have guessed in the first place. Mm. Yeah, because you can't take away your pain and you can't take away the things that have happened, but maybe you can make something of it by using it as fuel to grow. Yeah, or at the very least, you can come back to old circumstances with new feelings or old memories and reframe them. And Mm. so the pain will not disappear, but you can recontextualize. And this is one of the reasons why I think I say that for a healthy person, for me, my definition isn't necessarily they should be happy all the time or maybe super content, but that life should be worthwhile. There will be pain. There can be things that are unpleasant but it is worth sticking around and there's enough joy to whether the unpleasant moments or even the unpleasant moments still have a rhyme or a reason and a way you can interact with them. It's just to be able to look at the whole goddamn thing and say, yep, all right, it's worth it to me. Let's uh, mm. see it to the end. Yeah. And Anywho. here we are at the end. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. I was planning that segue and you picked it up. <laughs> totally intentional. It was an intentional audience. Nobody tell her. All right. So <laughs> thanks for swinging back around the pod, everybody. This was a great one. And thank you. Yeah. Mm. Again, a temporary feeling, but it's yeah. been great chatting with you, Noda. You know, we're kind of both running around trying to tag as many people as possible and trying to get them on here. So we haven't had as many conversations, just the two of us, but. It's great to be in the mix with you again. Yeah, good to chat to you. All right. Well, that's as good a place as any to leave it. So signing off. Thanks for swinging by, everybody. Bye.